Matthew Lee Batik is an Academy Award-nominated cinematographer best known for his work with director Darren Aronofsky on Pi, Requiem for a Dream, Black Swan, and other films. He received his second Academy Award nomination for Bradley Cooper's directorial debut, A Star is Born, and has worked with Spike Lee, Joel Schumacher, and John Favreau. Known for bringing an edgy elegance and psychological tension to films, his unique visual style can also be seen in Tigerland, Phone Booth, Iron Man 1 and 2, and Venom. And so, uh, Matthew Libati, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Thank you. Many people know you've done so many big films, you've done like intimate art house films, but even to go into some very notable successes like even Black Swan, uh, in a way, has this very personal feeling, could even be art house, whatever. How did you form your visual style and maybe in relation to different collaborators as well? I think that uh, early on in, in my training, you know, when I went to graduate school at the American Film Institute, it was sort of a mandate not to impose a style on something yes. mm -hmm. as a cinematographer. Uh, as a cinematographer, what you're trying to do is portray the story in the proper way. Yes. Of course, there's going to be an aesthetic that you place on based on your own taste, you know, and what you believe in, uh, maybe some of the things that you're attracted to, inspired by, but ultimately everything, all decisions are made with the narrative in place, or with the narrative in mind, I'd say. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to think I don't have one, <laughs> like one distinctive style. And what I'd, I'd love to do in uh, my career generally is to do different work so that it forces me not to repeat myself. I think that the one sort of base layer or foundation for me is to, to uh, sort of dissect and deconstruct the screenplay so that I can figure out technically what I would uh, apply and eventually form an aesthetic for and a visual language for based on the screenplay. And then that after that, um, that sort of entails uh, doing deep dives into research with photographs and art and music and things that you see in life and things that you remember from your past that sort of inform, they inform the things that you choose to do. You know, if something in a film has to be the morning, what looks like a morning to me might look different than a morning to somebody else. But as long as I convey morning, you know, I'm doing the film justice. Yes, if your style changes from film to film, I guess there is something very personal about, like particularly certain ones, we're talking about Black Swan, where you feel like it's very closely allied with the POV of uh, Natalie Portman's character. And that's something I associate with you. So it's interesting because you worked with um, Darren Aronofsky on a number of films. So in a way, maybe your, your visual style with him has grown, you've grown together in that. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, when people comment uh, often about the, the subjectivity and maybe don't even say the word subjectivity, but it's something that uh, you leave the audiences left with after seeing a film that he's done or we've done together where there's a subjectivity to the camera and people are connected to that one person. I mean, he excels as a filmmaker because he makes films about one singular character. You know, there's only been one time in our career together where that became more difficult because all the other characters, the peripheral characters, had as much importance, and that was Noah. You would think a film called Noah would be just about Noah, but there are so many other factors involved, and those characters needed some space, and they needed agency as well. But uh, if you look back on A Reckoning for a Dream, the character of Sarah Goldfarb, played by Ellen Burstyn, there's a subjectivity. Our first film together, Pi, Max Cohen, the language of the camera was built around the notion of subjectivity. And then we carried that all the way over to Black Swan and Mother, where the camera uh, just gets more and more subjective. And it's sort of a thing that's evolved over time. Sure. You know, we were much younger during Requiem and much older during Black Swan and even older during uh, Mother. And, you know, we matured as people. So uh, perhaps there's less sugar in the coffee. <laughs> today than there was when we made Pie and Requiem for a Dream. But um, the notion of subjectivity is something that we've always been exploring. And I have to say, you know, I've carried that over in moments uh, with other directors, with other filmmakers, when uh, the choice was left to me about where to place the camera. The choice was left to me 
whether or not uh, to accelerate or intensify the subjectivity of a character, say in a, uh, a bigger film like a, an Iron Man or a Inside Man or a, a Stars Born. I was just thinking of a conversation I had with a friend of mine, he's a composer, and he cannot even go into some spaces because they are, he uses the word bright, but they're phonically bright, like he can't, you know? So I'm wondering, like with you, because you're always registering these things, it's like, I imagine, like it's a thing that you feel physically, as opposed to many of us just take for granted. Well, I, I think you can contrast that. I like the term bright when it comes to something that's sonic. Because I could certainly say loud when it comes yeah. to light. Yes. And um, that applies in the same exact way. It's a balance, really, uh, for me. When the application of what I do from a lighting perspective, sometimes it has, I'd like it to be loud, mm -hmm. but not too loud. You know, sometimes you have to take it down a bit, and maybe something's too much. And sometimes you need something very bright or very loud to accentuate a moment in a film and, and you make that choice. You know, I, I wasn't uh, trained to look at light before I went to graduate school. You know, I, I learned from other people. I learned from professors. You know, I, I literally learned how to uh, study it through cinema. Now it's a daily occurrence. <laughs> you know, now that I'm in quarantine, I look at my home and how the light falls in my home and I've studied and, and I've not, I haven't recorded it. You know, I'm not taking iPhone pictures of the light in my house, but I do have a camera here. I have lenses. I have ways to record. I, it, it's interesting how, you know, the light in my house is in the morning versus what it is at night. And then I, I, I've been in this process of photographing it as a film, mm -hmm. just as a recording of my, my home. Only because I, I, it's just a light study. It's something that you can do. It's always affordable. Like it's something that, it's like playing an acoustic guitar by yourself. You know, you, uh, when you study light and you live with it, you're logging and cataloging times of day, you know, and light quality. And then, you know, and I'm in the business as a craftsman, I'm in the business of portraying that from artifice and making it feel natural. So uh, cataloging as much naturalism as possible is uh, important for me to be able to uh, recreate it somehow, some way. And when I do a setup or a scene, I constantly ask myself whether or not it looks like reality. Even though if you like to intensify, but you like to have a, a, a something that is naturalism or heightened naturalism. I really believe that the audience needs to feel connected uh, in a way where they feel like they've seen this situation before. And perhaps because of, uh, you know, Darren specifically, but uh, also Spike Lee, say, and even in Bradley Cooper's case, they're portraying and their performances that they're placing in front of the camera and the things that they're working on with the actors are so important in terms of uh, how real those characters are and how people connect to them mm -hmm. that the light shouldn't take. It's like the guitar being louder than the singer. You don't want the you don't want to drown out the lyrics. And that's how I feel about light. Yeah, I thought this was interesting because, of course, with Bradley Cooper, like his first time directing and then he's acting in it. And I hadn't realized because, as you say, because of the element of naturalism, how it was often like one camera or it was like you're just there and you're just transitioning naturally because I guess you don't want to be in the way. For Absolutely. I mean, I think that the language was born out of... Um... You know, it's his directorial style, yes. even though it was his first time as a director. It was his directorial style. He comes from a school of uh, David O. Russell and Clint Eastwood, a combination of the two. And you can see that when you work with him. But he has this amazing ability to be able to evaluate things while he's acting. And to get to that place, he had to spend so much time ingraining the character of Jackson Maine inside of him so that he could almost effortlessly perform this character you know, yeah. and transform himself into this person. And that gave him the ability, while at the same time, to multitask and, and evaluate the performance of uh, Lady Gaga, as well as where the camera was placed at any given time. And he had an enormous amount of trust. I think it's because that uh, everybody involved in that film can see what he was doing and could see what she was doing. She had an enormous amount of trust. 
And I think that comes from um, a give and take between the technical side and the creative side. And as a cinematographer, you are basically the uh, bridge between the technical side and the creative side. It's the place where you, you have to articulate the sensitivities of the creative side to the technical side and transpose those things into execution. So with, with that film, it, it was very fluid that way. And that the, re the reason why the camera moved that way was so that there was moments of inspiration. If something was all of a sudden working very well with a performance, we can transition to that person and not worry about all the things that come with making a film, like the equipment, just this, the imposition of like big pieces of equipment that are sort of being distractions. You know, what you want to do is create an, an, an environment that feels like the actor can move in space. And if one take moves to another take to another take, ideas could actually uh, transpire and uh, be uh, captured. And for some people, they find that unnerving, like when some things are not entirely worked out, you know, or would you like having the extra challenge or you like being able to discover things, not having it well, entirely mapped? I like both, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. I think my nature is to be very organized. <laughs> it's a great point. And I, I say this a lot in terms of uh, cinematography, is that you have to be malleable. You're, uh, you almost have to be a bit of a chameleon because the director you're working with is going to shift your way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Like in some way, you become an actor in this oh, uh, performance of making the film because you transform yourself into the advocate of this person whether you agree 100% or not. And the mm -hmm. style in which this person works and the, the style in which actors work is gonna dictate how you work, uh, how I work. In this case, I do like rules. When we made pie with Darren, we made pie, we were, we were restricted by what we had and what we did. We're more restricted by what we did not have mm -hmm. um, at that point in our lives and, and, and our careers. So we constructed a style of film that was achievable based on what we had. But I guess what I'm saying is each situation sort of brings to the table a set of parameters and restrictions that you play inside of. And once those are established, the creativity begins. With A Star is Born, what was truly magical for me about the film wasn't actually the end result. <laughs> I, although people liked the way the film was. What was magical to me is that I saw the connection between a very established musical force an established acting force, helping each other turn into each other in a certain way. Gaga had to help Bradley be a musician and Bradley had to help Gaga be an actor. That was something beautiful to witness and I had a front row seat for that. For me, what I realized I had to do was give them as much space with the camera, give this, as much space with the light so that there was room to try to capture the, the moments, the, the really emotional moments without disturbing those. And that's a very hard thing to do. It's something Darren and I have always talked about since we were young. You know, we met in uh, film school. We've always talked about like, protecting the actor and, and giving them room for performance. And so I'm interested in some of the, um, the conversations you might have at the beginning of films when you're making those decisions, when you're deciding together the look. What questions are you asking, or are you building? Like, is there like once you once you know like there's a key scene, or what you know? What's the thing that helps unlock it? I mean, the easiest way for something to get unlocked is you know they call them directors for a reason. Like, what they want, what you want from them is some inspiration of from their standpoint. You know, <laughs> what I like to bring to the table is a uh, a backlog and catalog of things that I've thought about, mm -hmm. but I don't. I don't, uh, at the very, very beginning, I don't impose those yet. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to do is understand the person that uh, is, is in charge of creating this story, being the storyteller. I want to support the storyteller. So what I try to do is learn the person first and foremost. The first way I do that really is to talk about character and structure. And, and um, you know, if they're a writer, we talk about story structure. You know, perhaps we talk about what is it, the, the hero's journey. You know, mm -hmm. we, we talk about, you know, where are the beats that are important? Where is the point of no return? Or if it's an actor director or somebody who's more akin to, or maybe they didn't write the screenplay and they are really focused on performance, then I, we talk character. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's where we get into the head of what's important. That's the foundation. It's like laying the cement before the house is mm -hmm. trying to get on the same page with how they feel about these things. 
what that does in the future for me, it makes, it gives me ammunition to be prepared for when something's going to be a little more tense on set, when something's going to be of monumental importance, even though the script doesn't say so. There's an emotional beat there that's very important that I, I need to remember to capture. And I subsequently have to make sure that the environment around and what I'm doing isn't going to interfere with that. Are you tempted, because there's so many interesting things going on in television and really filmic. Um, are, you, are you tempted to you know, divide your time more? I don't know if I have a choice in this current um, <laughs> in this current uh, in this current uh, climate. You know, I think that um, it's the it's the future, it's the present, and um, I think that there is some wonderful television, uh, wonderful streaming shows, and people are doing amazing work. I think cinema is changing. I think they're going to blend together, and you could see that by the quality of television. There is when I watch television, I could see references that have nothing to do with previous television. All I see is references that have something to do with cinema. You know, yeah. I see shows that have references to Tarkovsky. I, I have shows that have references to Polanski. Very rarely do I see what you would see in old network television from the 70s, 80s, 90s. What I'm seeing now is a movement towards cinema. But that's very encouraging. But because of the saturation of streaming, you know, I, obviously we're all at home and we're watching a lot of Netflix or Hulu what I fear is the homogenization of work. There's something about time and place. There's something about uh, cinema. Even if you go to a film festival, when you go to a film festival, say the New York Film Festival, you go to a screening, different people are in that audience. So it's a different day. It's a different experience. And then you go two days later, you go back again, you see a different film. It's a different film, but it's a different audience. It's a different day. Here, I'm in the same, I'm sitting in the same place. I'm watching the same screen. Yeah. And um, it's not the same, you know. And then, and then eventually everything becomes homogenized in sort of a science fiction kind of way because my periphery is homogenized and what I'm looking at is homogenized and things are starting to look the same for me. That's my, my fear. You often have these directors coming in and they're, you know, they're giving it the same look, you know. So I know that there are other people who are fixed. But, you know, the director's coming in just for an episode. And it was just, it's, it just is puzzling for me how the, the visual signature was staying the same often. As I understand it, look, I've, I've only done, I, I just recently worked on my first Netflix film, you know, and I haven't, I've done no television. And I realize in, in learning more about it, that there's the showrunner who's kind of a producer, but they run this, uh, they, they, they sort of oversee the entire project. And then there's a, maybe a, one cinematographer, maybe there's two cinematographers, but they've decided on the look. And then there's a workflow for that, and they, they sort of adhere to that. And the actors know the cadence of where the cameras are going for any given scene. And directors just come in and work on performance, and they work on maybe, maybe shot selection. Obviously, they do shot selection. I don't know if that's always going to remain, to be honest. I think you're going to start to see uh, shorter seasons, maybe six episode seasons of one hour each because directors are going to want to stay on for the duration, yes. you know, and all of a sudden it's going to have a singular voice, which is, which is the hardest thing really. So like I think that I've been fortunate to work with some directors that you know that there's going to be a singular voice at the end of the film. And I think that uh, now, because theatrical is going to take such a sad, sad sort of hit in, in today's society and our, our near future, I really feel that our established directors, our, real, our, our auteurs, are going to do six to eight episodes on their own mm -hmm. because they need, to, they need to make films. You know, they're not going to be satisfied with making a pilot and letting the film go. They're going to want to make their mark. And I think that that would be, that's probably something that would be really good for cinema. And speaking of auteurs, you've worked with Spike Lee a, a number of times. I understand that he was like influential in terms of like your decision to go into filmmaking. Absolutely. I mean, he's, uh, he's become a, a friend and a confidant, but he started off as an inspiration, huh. but a life-changing inspiration. I've had a lot of inspirations creatively, but he's one of the very few that was a life-changing inspiration for me because he he exemplified a way for me to understand that I may perhaps I had a future in cinema coming from where I come from and being who I was. Uh, you know, I'm a first-generation Filipino. 
my parents did not, although they believed in this, you know, the theoretical American dream, they didn't know how to achieve it necessarily. It's very easy to say hard work because that's what I heard as a child, hard work, hard work, hard work. But I didn't know all the nuts and bolts of how I was going to get into a, a university. I didn't know how I was going to do anything really because they didn't know. So I didn't, you know, I was very confused as a child. I was very confused as a teenager. I was very confused as a young man. And I was probably about 19 years old when I saw Do the Right Thing. And then I realized that film cinema was something that was attainable. Before that, I had seen things like Indiana Jones and uh, Star Wars, and, and nothing could be further from what was my reality. Like, there's no way. I had no idea. But when I started to see that, he inspired me to look into, you know, like Jim Jarmusch because I read an article in a magazine about Spike Lee and how he went to school and how he, he rented equipment to Jim Jarmusch for Stranger Than Paradise. And I thought I researched Jim Jarmusch and then my world was exploded. And that was the early nineties and you had like Spike Lee, you had Jim Jarmusch. And then all of a sudden you had Richard Linkletter and then Robert Rodriguez and, uh, the world was kind of changing for me, like, you know, musically, you know, you had Public Enemy, you had the Pixies, you had Nirvana coming out a few, a few years later, KRS-One, you know, you had all these things happening, social consciousness, and it was a really good time. I was at a very formative place in my life that I'm still moving that way, <laughs> you know, it, was just, it, yeah. it really propelled my, um, my uh, interest in popular culture. And then thinking about, of course, I mean, Spike Lee's film, he's been so outspoken in his films, I mean, against racism, social injustices, the various invisible invisibilities of, uh, you know, minorities or the way they're treated. Uh, would you like to use your visual storytelling skills more to tell the stories of Filipino Americans? Because it's not something we don't see a lot, you know? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It really, yeah. that's a great, great question. You know, um, I was fortunate... 2017, I was able to finally bring my uh, mother and two children back to the Philippines. Oh. And um, that was like an eye-opening thing. You know, my, my, uh, my kids had never been there, and they were uh, 17 at the time. And it was a good time to bring them. I wish I would have brought them a little earlier, but it was a really great time to bring them to see where this half of their family came from. The reason go I was going there was I was doing a master class for cinematographers in Manila. And it was a real connection for me, hearing their stories and seeing what they go through. And something about Filipino culture is that they, because they feel there's such a, a diminished quality to their existence in the U.S., they're sort of invisible in the way. So we blend in uh, uh, culturally. We're able to mix in with different cultures and then uh, seemingly lose our own. And, and our culture stays at home. It doesn't make it into the restaurants, typically unless you're in New York or Los Angeles, people know very little about Filipino culture. So um, now at my age, I've met more and more Filipino filmmakers who become interested in making cinema. So I hope that that day comes. I wonder what that story is. I, I, I have to say, in, in, uh, not in any disparaging way, I just feel like whatever it is, it's going to be a comedy. It's just going to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good thing. I mean, I think it's a good thing, but you know, that's how we ride the injustices or whatever. You know, it's how we make uh, we make peace with things. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if you've seen the film Farewell. It's Chinese Americans, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Chinese American goes back, and and it, it has all the um, you know things that we've heard of in Chinese culture and how. But it's very similar to a, all Asian cultures mm -hmm. in, a, in a strange way, and because we all feel that way, uh, family pressures that you feel approvals and the notion of your elders and sort of how the disappointment of your language not being as good as it should be yeah you know the, all these things and um you know america does something really uh really strange to cultures because it starts uh it, it's so comfortable here that um you lose it you you, you lose it you know and um it happened uh, to europeans at the turn of the century and it's happened to asians in the last century it's that the children lose language and um, the food and the culture and the, you know, but I think it's turning around. I think people are becoming more, it's becoming more important for, for people to hold on to their culture, especially in a country where I think uh, the U.S. is a country that struggles, really struggles to define what the actual culture is. 
just having a sense of history generally is very important. And as people, a lot of artists and whatever disciplines have spoken to me about that. And I think that, that there is a kind of collective amnesia forgetting about. And then the subsequent generations, they want to know. And the generation before said, well, they told us to forget, you know? So, yeah, you know. exactly. I, I never really asked a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. I never asked a lot of questions. I was first generation. So I feel like when I look back at my uh, upbringing, I, I felt like I was just trying to survive in a place that seemed foreign to me. And I look at my children. They interviewed my mother for school mm-hmm. and uh, they didn't tell me anything that they they recorded or anything. But I, I thought that was interesting. It's just like, you know, a generation has to sacrifice itself to assimilate. Exactly, yeah. And then next, and the next generation can start to observe. And I think that that's, um, that's just the way of the world. I, but I now, you know, I'm regretful that I don't know more, uh, to be honest. And, then, and that's a search. And I think that, that, you know, my trip to the Philippines and my discussions with Filipino filmmakers and your initial question, absolutely, I, I think that uh, there's something that would be uh, completely empty in my life if I didn't, wasn't able to uh, contribute to Filipino cinema in some way, even if it was there. But you speak Tagalog, yeah. So uh, I understand Tagalog. I understand yeah. Tagalog very well, but I don't actually um, speak it very well. Yeah. Like my grammar is terrible, and my vocabulary is not as, you know. Sometimes I I read Tagalog, and I'll you know a lifetime of thinking it was one word was three. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah, because it was all oral. Well, I, I really, I would look forward to seeing that. And I think that we're, go- we're going to see more just generally Asian American voices. I mean, it's really odd because that Crazy Rich Asians was like only, what, a few years ago. And like, it was like, <laughs> you know, it's like a, a film, like a major film every 25 years. So, I mean, <laughs> I think we're kind of yeah. seeing some other waves, but you would also now we see like this, uh, this Korean films that's uh, so well, Parasite. So I think that there is a hunger and who knew, you know? <laughs> that, uh, well, it's interesting. It's like, it was Joy Luck Club and then uh-huh. it was uh, Crazy Rich Asians. How many yeah. years in between is that? That's probably 15 to 17 years. In between yeah. those two films, it's it's crazy. It's it's just look. I think that the U.S. is interesting because there are still the um, the lingering issues of racism and it, Asians because of economics and education uh, sort of take a backseat to the discussion. Mm-hmm. They've always taken the backseat to the discussion of race because um, because there is so much strife and there's so much animosity. And there's so much actual racism when it comes to black and brown and Latino communities. And a lot of that is socioeconomic. And it's the socioeconomic status of many of these disenfranchised people are the byproduct of this racism. And the Asian communities don't find it as much. Because if you go into a Chinatown, it's like going into Hasidic Williamsburg. You know, it's like they have their own culture. They're okay, right? So we don't, we just, just, forget about Chinatown, we forget about Hasidic Williamsburg, and we forget about historic Filipino town, or, and we forget about Koreatown because they take care of themselves, mm-hmm. right? And they're store owners and whatever. And I get that, but I think it's important for voices to be an activist. In terms of activism, I think that it takes more, but uh, sort of the voice of the Asian American has to be um, something that has to be heard. Like we understand the plight of the other minorities in the country. And it's, it's going to take a collective effort. And I think the, the younger generations, the millennials and pre, and even the, uh, I guess, Generation Z, they're all more conscious of these things. And I think that there's a, there's a hope. You know, I'm not to stick on it for too long, but you know, it's an interesting thing because we find with our projects is we're dealing with like over 70 universities. But one thing that we're kind of like, it's ingrained into a lot of people that you're not supposed to say it. And there's this impression that yes, as a minority, Asians shouldn't be creative or, or, or even there's this kind of racism. You're not creative, like uh, you're good at math or whatever, but you're not creative. And, you know, it's so interesting because if you take a survey of this project, the creative process, and the number of students who have signed up, it's so many Asians. Of course, it's a mix. We have all kinds. But it's a, in terms of the percentage of the population from America, it's a lot of Asians who are very interested in creative expression. And they're coming from all their, like, 
film or music or whatever. And so it really cancels out that thing that <laughs> that I had certainly heard. But that's the thing. Well, it's you know, I, I think yeah. it, for some reason, uh, I think China's our oldest society, right, on the, on the planet pretty much, right? The oldest civilized society. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, art has to always start in Europe. Yeah. It's all European. Yeah. And that is the struggle. And even in my own life at the beginning, I didn't study uh, Asian uh, art. I looked at European art. That was what is uh, taught in the U.S. is European art. And obviously, rightly so in some ways, because, uh, you know, the way that the Italians articulated light was, and, and is also the Dutch articulated light, was astounding. Like the realism that they could create as painters was, was just uh, mind-blowing. When you think about what they do, they're the first photographers. But in, uh, when you look at the Asian art, it's more expressionistic. It's less mm-hmm. real, right? So I think that people just had this ingrained connection to it. And you know what I think helps really is the explosion of modern art. Visual artists and, and people are starting to look at things a different way. And it's important to look at things a different way. So that now, just like cinema, I think world cinema is, is so engaging. I think that visual arts and um, visual artists are so engaging with concepts and whether it's sculpture or painting or the, the mix of these things, it's opening up a different way to perceive ideas, you know? So the realism in art has sort of taken a back seat to the creativity. Hello, my name is Yu Young Lee. I'm currently a sophomore attending Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and I'm studying English. In learning about cinematography through the eyes and lens of Matthew Libatik, what's illuminating to me is the conscientiousness that permeates his work. It's not to say that other filmmakers are thoughtless in their creative direction, that every shot is serendipitously stitched together. That most definitely isn't the case, with so many breathtaking films and renowned cinematographers. It's more that the depths of Libatique's thinking and decisions with light and with his camera speak to his immense love of the form and the awareness of the effect it holds on viewers. Our attention only goes so far. And yes, although a film dictates our gaze in the first few minutes, this flighty and easily lost thing must be earned throughout the rest of the hour. And it seems that the threshold into focus, a sharp kind of engagement where the moving pictures have an audience pinned in place, is blurrier and difficult to reach in practice. I've noticed that many times the best films only really feel like one after the credits roll. It's like the idea that I'm actually watching something, that what I'm watching is a movie, disintegrates, and the parts only piece themselves together afterwards. The more films I watch, the more I see how subconsciously good cinematography captures me. Flashy pointedness in what's captured in the frame is sometimes so striking and commanding that it's jarring. But to realize a frame's holding power on technical terms on a very conscious level, rather than subliminally understanding its perfect manifestation within and of the story, is the difference between taking you out of it and drawing you that much closer, between distracting the story, even if it is a beautiful distraction, and ascending it. It's also intriguing to me how he talks about how conscious he is about history, legacy, and power. Who wrote it, creates it, holds it, and most importantly, who shares and tells others of it and how. What has defined and dominated our artistic appreciation is so intrinsically tied to a discriminatory curation, a red rope that has left countless voices, stories, visions, and ideas go unheard. So many, especially Black and Indigenous people, people of color, the LGBTQ community, women, have been disenfranchised in creative ways that seem insignificant alongside political and historical injustices, but are in fact the truth and mark of the political and the historical. When Libatik speaks about Spike Lee and his first time seeing Do the Right Thing and how Lee awakened a new understanding of cinema for him, 
I could feel how monumental that moment was for him. And that realization that this was a possibility took Lee Batik to where he is now, making films that hopefully are sparking the same kind of fire in other young, aspiring filmmakers and creatives. Thank you for listening. For those of you just joining, Mia Funk continues this interview with Oscar-nominated cinematographer Matthew Lee Batik. And so you spoke of some filmmakers, um, you know, people who kind of like helped open your eyes. Filmmakers, you mean, specifically? It doesn't even just have to be filmmakers, but, you know, for you artists who are important to the artists you are today. I'm blown away by uh, Oliver Eliasson. Mm -hmm. um, oh, Just yes. the ideas and the, the, the scope of ideas. Maurizio Catalan, you know, mm -hmm. for example. Just the, the ideas. There's a bit of folly. There's a political dissidence. <laughs> There's a way to, you know, it's the true essence of art. It's rebellion. It's got humor. I think that that's really interesting. Rashid Johnson, who I had a pleasure to work with on a film, is a extremely, I think he's important, really important for the African-American existence as artists here and just the existence of people and our creative people. There's an Argentinian artist, uh, Leandro Ehrlich, who I love as well. His sculptures, like, existing in... Um, places. I remember seeing a beautiful exhibition of his or artwork of his in New Orleans, you know, where he had a ladder just sort of uh, suspended. I had no idea how leading up to a window, you know, that was just floating in the in space outside. And there's that, that beautiful uh, sculpture garden in Yorkshire in England that has all the cause work, cause with the giant uh, figurines. It's like going to a giant robot in Los Angeles and but it's like, it's like uh, on steroids as you see these figures that you know that are usually this big when you buy them in a, in a yeah. store and they're 20 to 30 feet high. You know, I think that that's amazing. I love the expression of human ideas manifested and all of a sudden, you know, you're standing in front of it and dwarfed by a human idea. And yeah. I think that's uh, something really impressive to me. And Oliver obviously does that with his work. What I like to take from that is is it's the same notion what I was saying about the Europeans. Every film has to, everything I do has to have layers. And the only way to create original layers and layers of importance to me is to not take things so literally. Because ultimately what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to spit out is something that people understand. It could be literal, but the technique that I use, like I try to layer technique over technique so that it's all kind of hidden together like you're cooking something. The onions go in first. <laughs> and the garlic goes in and, and saute that and then you know, all the all the things come together into something that uh, couldn't exist without all the things together and that's basically what I get out of studying and just appreciating these new artists these artists that have stepped away from literalness it's interesting how you can introduce these kind of elements that are a dream and yet I guess going back to that word to this subjective style of camera work you don't realize, like, say, in Black Swan, that there's all these doubles going on. There's all these reflections. And this is really like this dream nightmare, you know? Yeah. I think it's interesting. They say that of artists, but I think for all of us, that we have this thin thread of, like, sanity. You know, we have this, you know, look, at, at night we have these dreams where we can do anything, like laws slip away, time slips away. And then we're kind of, saying we program ourselves to be sane so it's very interesting when you can play with that and then make us doubt and i have to say this has been unsettling and also mother and you know you've, you've done that in a number of films what's interesting to me about the human condition is there's people who turn their heads but there are people who stay, lean in yeah. so you have that in the audience you know you have those people who have the appetite for those things and lean into those moments and then you have the people who turn away and, you know it's one of my favorite things to do is sitting in the audience what I'm going to miss about the near future is sitting in an audience and, and, and feeling the you just feel the reaction. There's nothing like it as a filmmaker is to feel the audience. It's like, can you imagine a musician being on stage without an audience? It's a relationship. Right now, I'm, you know, I watch people performing songs on, on YouTube or on Instagram, and it's wonderful that they're doing it. But you miss the audience. Anybody who performs has to miss the interaction because it's so much part of what their creative process is, is immediate gratification. <laughs>
Exactly, because otherwise, how could actors or other performers, you know, do the same lines 300 times, you know, and twice on Sunday, you know, <laughs> without that, that must be it, that that's the new element, it's them, that's the new character every time, you know. But uh, I find that so interesting. So I'm thinking some people said that maybe the drive-in will make a comeback. So we'll still <laughs> go to the cinema, but we're in our bubbles again. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we're, we're, human beings are going to get outside of their cars. Yeah. And they're going to stand there and listen to it. And then maybe have a conversation across two vehicles. I, I love the drive-in. I grew up with the drive-in. My parents used to take me to movies. I remember seeing the the 1970s version of A Star is Born in the drive-in. Oh, yeah. um, and I watched uh, movies with them. Like, I would, because they would just, I would just fall asleep if I was bored. But that was a, a, a way they could sort of take care of my brother and I and go to the movies for themselves. And I think they will come back. I, I do. I, in places that have the space, I think uh -huh. the drive-ins will come back and people can see movies together. And you can still, you know, you can still hear people clapping. You can still hear people cheering. You can still hear the reaction of people. And I think we need that. Uh, we'll just be, too, we'll just be, you know, looking left at over somebody's car hood and uh, they're standing there too because they can't sit inside anymore. I was speaking with Paul Hirsch the other day because you're talking about Star Wars, so edited Star Wars and like over 40 films. But um, he's concerned and different people are concerned about the future of cinema and future of a lot of things. But how do we reinvent? I mean, this will pass. The pandemic eventually will pass and we'll be able to go out. But how do we keep the cinema theater going experience alive? How do we bring it to a new level that people oh, feel bothered to get off their sofas and go out, you know? Of course, I, I'm, I live in a uh, cinema city. I live in Paris, so that's, it's not going away here, but in a lot of places. What would you like to maybe add to it, like to trick people to go out to the cinema? To well, I think in the, in the short term, I think that the, the incentive is that it's an event. Like a concert's an event. Uh, movies are going to become an event. Maybe the days of a film, you know, that is a, a lesser known thing, they may exist in smaller theaters and they'll exist, uh, you know, the Angelica, for example. Maybe the Angelica will have less screens. They'll run less screens or they'll run the same movie in more than one screen and um, they'll create an experience for uh, people where they can social distance. But I think that here in Los Angeles, El Capitan has a uh, premiere week of all the Disney films, right? And they, they're events. They're, they're where, where people take their kids. And I, I think if, if 1917 came out in uh, December of this year, then people would go to the Cinerama Dome to see it. If, okay, we're going to incentivize you to come out, this event, maybe there's music. Maybe there's an orchestra. Maybe there's, a, there's something that's going to make you want to go. And perhaps the first week, you know, you have you, you, the cinematographer of 1917 will be here at the end of the screening so you can hear what he has to say. Or the, yeah. And people, I think uh, filmmakers are going to have to be active in promoting films to get people back in. I was able to, at South by Southwest, there's Alamo Draft House. It's, it's an amazing place. It's a very small theater. You can go there and they have food and they bring it to you and you're sitting there in a comfortable seat. And you're ordering wine or beer or your cocktail and you're ordering French fries. And uh, that might be another incentivism, uh, incentivizing thing where uh, people go because it's an event. Yes. yes. Yeah, as I said, in Paris, we're kind of still, you, you see people queuing up for cinema at noon. You know, you wonder, like, do they have jobs? But <laughs> when it's I, I, I applaud them. I applaud them. It's my favorite time to see a film is during the day. And you've given us so many things to, to think about. I don't know what your current project that you're working on, uh, if there's something uh, on, on the boil that you'd like to share. Well, right now, I'm, uh, nothing, you know, I, uh, I'm just breaking down a couple of scripts with Bradley and uh, Darren as well, potential films that they might want to make. And I, now I have time to concentrate on them and, and look at them and sort of break them down, kind of like as if I was working on them already. Uh, I'm also uh, currently archiving. I've never sat down to organize everything I've done, like yeah. photographs and all the hard drives of material that I have, and negatives. And so now it's laborious. It's, uh, I'm, I'm actually bored of it. I hate myself when I go into my office because it's a mess of uh, Polaroids and prints and uh, negatives and hard drives. And I, 
I don't know if I, I did the wrong thing by starting this project. I, part of me just feels like you leave the past alone and just throw it in a box. But now I'm, I'm, more, I'm, I'm, ha I'm, I'm halfway there. But I want to ask you, mentioned about breaking down a script. So how does that, because you're often getting the scripts, even when they're just an idea, they're just a draft. They're not even, and how are you, I mean, I don't know, and ask your notation, but you're scene by scene with a palette or whatever, what are you looking for, you know? Well, it's ex exactly that. It's scene by scene. So, um, uh -huh. you know, when I was a, when I was in uh, school, I used to create, every time I had an exam, I would, I would uh, the way I'd study is I would take these little tiny pieces of paper and I would, do a cheat sheet of all information that I needed to remember. And I had a system where I would put them in my pockets. Like I had one, one in one back pocket, one in the other back pocket, one in the front pocket, one in the, based on uh, what I knew about the test, you know, I would watch the teacher take the paper out and look at it and it would fit in my hand. Mm -hmm. And I would just, I would be reminded. Most of the time, because I did that and I wrote it so small, I didn't think to it. I, did, I really didn't have to refer to it. So like yeah. now I do the same, I almost do the same thing with films because I think that the one thing that's important for me is to understand the, um, the film as well as the director or as much as I possibly can. I don't want to be lost because I want to be a, actually what I'd like to do is be ahead of someone because, you know, part of my job is a uh, responsibility to achieve it. So I like to be ahead. So I like to understand where, you know, what the importance is of any given scene and uh, have an idea of how many shots it's going to require to achieve it. And that informs how I approach anything, is, is uh, how much I know about it. I used to do everything on paper. You know, obviously at the beginning, it was, a, it was all paper, handwritten graphs, diagrams. I, I would literally do a timeline with a ruler and then write all the scenes very small. And then I would highlight them to see the flow of color throughout the scene. Mm -hmm. And now I do a spreadsheet, I, you know, I, I, I Google Sheets and I just, I break down, I just do different categories for different disciplines in my, in my realm, whether it be the camera, the optics, the light, whether it was, it was a, a motivated light or a uh, unmotivated light down to types of equipment. So it goes from something very uh, theoretical to something very practical. Like if you look at a timeline that I do, it starts with the scripts, it starts with the script and then it moves along to theoretical notes, into practical notes, and then it gets more and more boring as it goes to the right of the document. <laughs> Sorry, what's motivated and what's an unmotivated light? Oh, a motivated light is something that is, uh, you know, born out of the reality of the scene. Oh, Say it's okay. a day interior, it's day interior, and obviously the, the most of the light's going to come from the windows. Uh -huh. Okay. But say, um, or it's night and, and uh, you know, there's a lamp on and I motivate everything from the source of that lamp. And I augment that by hiding units to make it feel like it's all coming from that lamp. Unmotivated light is something that's tricky because um, that's where there's a lot of creativity involved and you don't want to take away from the story. But there is no, there's no exact motivation. For example, uh, night exterior forest. You know, there's an old story, uh, a David Lynch story. He went to a cinematographer, and I think it was for Fire Walk with me, a cinematographer named Ron Garcia. He lit the scene, and David uh, asked him, where's all this light coming from? And he, uh, the cinematographer responded, the same place the music is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's unmotivated fun. light. Uh -huh. Finding a, an unmotivated light that has some semblance of reality so you don't take people out of the story is a, is a challenge. I mean, it's really, one of the missions of this project is to celebrate I guess, visible artists. And even though you're working in the visual medium, we're just so often, we're not thinking that somebody's filming all of this and somebody's lighting all of this. So that what cinematographers do, and so often I look at a performance, I think, oh, what a great performance. But the actor didn't even say anything and they just looked and it was a quality of light playing on them. So what a gift you give them and then to make it look as, it, as though it all was motivated light. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think like I, I, the, the most successful films are sort of a combination of a multitude of disciplines, right? Yeah. And, and excelling all at the same time, whether it's motivated or unmotivated, one that people feel but don't necessarily notice, I think is important. So I guess lastly, because I, you know, it's an education initiative and as you speak, we're all in confinement now. So our, our, my, our thoughts are thinking a lot about the future and how systems are breaking down. And, but you're someone who's had the great good fortune and hard work to collaborate on what, you know, with great artists on great projects and to, to do incredible things 
projects collectively. So as you think about systems, you know, education, the environment, the future, just even politics, and we can see what's going wrong. What are some things that you would like to improve to build a better future, you know? Um, and how can the arts be a part of that? Well, I think the arts are always going to be a part of our existence because uh, people need to speak. Like what I've learned out of this confinement is that you think a lot. You know, there's a lot of thoughts that you hold on to your own. And we don't have the daily distractions of our, our daily existence in work and, or interactions uh, at a store or interactions with a police officer or a, a person who's giving you a parking ticket. You know, we're not having those interactions to distract us from our minds. Art is, and I think that there will be an explosion. Once we understand what's happened, like some people are looking at this situation as a, a purely as a, a health disaster, which it is, and some uh, as an economic disaster, which it is. But it's also an existential one. People are wondering what were the, are the consequences of climate change. Well, this could be one of them. And artists are going to speak because in their minds they've been thinking. Because one of the things that artists have to do to create is give thought to things. Mm -hmm. So I think art has a, a very bright future for us. You know, I pay attention to the tech world because I think they're a window to our future in terms of uh, workforce, how we're going to exist. Um, I think paying attention to tech, which I'm not well versed in, and in sort of the the umbrella that they've created over us as a society, is important at this point because they're, they're we're look at look, we're on Zoom now, and and all these things are going to uh, be important for us. So, I think it's a time to reflect on our past, which uh, I'm certainly doing, but it's also a time to evaluate why we got here and what we've done to the future generations and the decisions we've made as a collective society. So uh, um, I think uh, art is going to explode. I think that the ideas are going to explode. And I'm, what I'm really hoping is that the future of us as human beings is really incumbent upon the amount of attention to these themes being paid by the younger generations, Because the younger generations are the ones that are going to um, try to say, you know, try to correct these things correct the uh, climate change they're the ones that are going to correct this the pandemics and the the threat of viruses you know when i was in my 20s when i was in my younger years it was aids you know aids was uh, rampant you know and it, it it seemingly had no end you know you look at art and it reflects that it reflected that time art reflected the cold war which i also lived through as a child and was scary and um, this is scary and I'm just hoping that you know we have a generation of young people that are so thoughtful that they're gonna they're gonna take what we've done and accelerate it creatively you know continue to write the story of mankind well I want to thank you um, Matthew Lebatique for inviting us into your creative world for your your visual, emotional, thought-provoking stories that share subjective experiences of others and invite us to reflect upon our own. Uh, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. I'm so happy to be a part of it. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast and Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.